Welcome to Steel Stories by US Steel. In this podcast, we explore the wealth of knowledge from leading industry experts to help you navigate the infinitely developing, renewable world of steel. Welcome to Steel Stories. I'm your host, David Kirkpatrick. Today, we're going to take you on a journey through time and imagination, diving into the creative genius of Sid Mead, a visionary graphic designer and futurist known for his groundbreaking work in industrial design and concept art. Sid is considered one of the most influential and celebrated designers of the 20th century. More recently, his work has served as the inspiration for movies, including Tron and Blade Runner. But his pivotal collaboration with U.S. Steel in the 1960s showcased his visionary design of a future where steel's versatility and strengths would revolutionize architecture, transportation, infrastructure, and much more. Sadly, Sid Mead passed away in 2019, but his legacy lives on. And who better to reveal the lesser-known chapters of Sid's journey and relationship with U.S. Steel than his close partner, a creative genius in his own right, Roger Severick. We recently met with Roger and had a chance to learn more about Sid and his work with U.S. Steel. During this episode, we'll be discussing some of Sid's work, and links to the images we discuss will be in the notes on the podcast episode page. So check that out. We hope you enjoy this unique conversation. My guest today is Roger Servick, who runs something called Sid Mead Incorporated, which is something that's been around for a long time. He has a longstanding relationship with Sid, and he's going to tell us who Sid is. So welcome, Roger. Tell us a little bit about yourself and tell us a little bit about Sid Mead. Well, I started out in Detroit, Michigan, going to Wayne State University, and my original goal was to become an automotive designer. Most everyone in Detroit at the time, this is the late 60s, was in some way involved with the automotive industry. And so I wasn't any different. And I liked to draw. I liked art. I loved cars. I loved things about the automotive industry. And upon graduation from Wayne State, I was given a phone number, which turned out to be Sid Meads, of someone that at the time had just started his own company. It was less than a year. And he was going to critique my portfolio on graduation. It was that day that I had my portfolio critique that I met Sid Mead. And so he was actually the first person I ever interviewed with on leaving college. He gave me some very honest advice and spilled out what it was like to be an automotive designer, which he had worked at professionally for two years and found it limiting. He, with his talent, found that the automotive industry didn't give him enough opportunity to expand to all the things that he was able to dream up and innovate and illustrate. And so he left after two years and he told me that automotive operations, the cars, the industry at large is probably one of the highest commodities when it comes to design. There's so many parts, so many moving pieces, so many opportunities for a designer to express themselves, but it was still just one commodity. And there were so many things happening in industry at the time that he was exploring it even larger. It was at that time that we became friends and stayed friends for 
50 years until his passing in 2019. And it was uh, 20 years later that I actually took over as manager of Sid Mead Incorporated, having stayed in contact all those years. But from 1981, well, till today, I'm still president of Sid Mead Incorporated. Yeah. So your role is really to maintain his legacy and you're doing it with great panache and passion, which is wonderful. So I guess it was around 1961 that Sid first started working with U.S. Steel. Is that correct? Yes, it was about 1961. He was still working with Ford Motor Company. He was still fully employed at Ford Motor Company, but he took a sabbatical to do one project that he was offered. Just to give you a perspective of his situation, he was being paid about $4,000 a year at Ford Motor Company as a designer, which today might sound difficult for some of the younger viewers to uh, understand, but $4,000 was the price of a brand new Lincoln at the time. So that was the equivalent of thirty dollars or $40,000 today, probably. Yes. With inflation and just the change of prices, there was quite a difference. $4,000 was a yearly salary back then, and Sid was offered $10,000 for a three-month assignment. So he jumped at the chance and did this for the Hanson Company, which was the U.S. Steel account, where he did the book Concepts, was the first book I think he worked on and illustrated. You know, you got to know Sid a little later. How do you feel that his work with U.S. Steel affected the way he thought about steel as a material of promise? Well, Sid didn't have any particular preference for steel. Sid didn't think of steel as being anything special, but he thought everything that was in industry had its plus and it had its negatives. And his idea was to use the best available material for any purpose. And he knew what steel was, and he knew what what cars were. And that was one of his strongest talents, was understanding how things are manufactured, whether they needed to be injected molded or die pressed. You learn this when you go to school as an industrial designer. You have to know the materials and why you use one material over the other. And in the case of the automotive industry at the time, steel was the best most rugged, most durable material available. And so that's why he became associated with U.S. Steel. And it is to this day in many things, even the EV cars are framed with steel because there's still no better replacement for it. Right. And so so U.S. Steel was eager to bolster its own position in automaking, and steel was the material that it hoped would be used even more than it was at the time. And so how did Sid envision how that might happen? Well, Sid was a designer, number one. He was a designer. He was not a manufacturer. So one of the first things you're taught when you go to a design school, which I was taught when I went to Wayne State in industrial design, is basically what a designer is, is a salesman, not a manufacturer. His job is to make his designed project on the shelf look better to the customer than any other product that's up there in competition. And that's what Sid's goal was, to make the cars that he was designing outshine anyone else's cars, that you would want those cars. And if they were made with steel, then U.S. Steel, anybody that was manufacturing steel would be the best product on the market as well. And so this is where Sid and U.S. Steel collaborated and were successful during the 60s. 
Right. And he had a very flamboyant imagination of which he was extraordinarily good at visualizing and even visualizing the things that he imagined existing in the future in the context of the future. So he was really a professional futurist way back then, which is kind of exciting. So talk a little bit about some of the things that he came up with. Well, they weren't unique things in themselves. They were un the way things looked in themselves. He changed the way that images looked and were perceived. And his philosophy, or the thing that set him apart from most other designers, was that when he was given an assignment to do something like an automotive, a new convertible, we'll say, he didn't just design the convertible. He would also design the convertible of the future where the outfits that the people wore were a little bit different what the people wore today. And they looked like they were perfect for the car that they were driving. Things always worked together. The architecture that was, say, the garage or the, the motorway that these cars were driving on looked futuristic as well as the car and the people in it. The whole thing worked together. Everything was in harmony. And that was Sid's really strong part because he sold people the image of this is the direction we should follow. This is what we need to have as a better life, a better way of approaching. We shouldn't just be looking at buying a pair of shoes or buying a, an automobile or buying a carving knife that's, oh, we like this thing, and our lives become eclectic and they disjointed. And there's a chaos to our lives when things aren't in harmony. You, we notice it ourselves in certain communities where every house has a different architecture and nobody's house looks compatible with the house next to it, as opposed to a planned community where even though the houses aren't cookie cutter, we don't go to that type of an extreme, but if they take a sensitivity to their surroundings and the houses aren't built in the wilderness to stand out from the wilderness, but are blending in with natural materials like the natural field stones, the natural timbers, there's a feeling of comfort that we get or, or harmony that we get that makes our lives better. It gets overlooked by many designers. Well, I think the sort of climax of Sid's involvement with U.S. Steel was this extraordinary portfolio of 12 images. That was the last assignment, yes. Which you have up on the Sid Mead website as the Steel series. Yes. We're going to talk about a few of those in specific in a minute, but tell us what that series was intended to accomplish and a little bit the story of what happened with it. Well, there were several books. In fact, I was going to go through that list of just titles that we had. I know the first book that we had was Concepts in 1961. Then there was Projections in 1962 and Projections in Steel, which was a compatible book. And there was Perspectives in 1964. And then there was a calendar that came out in 1965 and a book called Innovations in 1968. And then an Interface book in 1969. And this last portfolio series came out at the end of 1969. And all of that work was done for U.S. Steel through the Hanson. All of these things were done for U.S. Steel. For the Hanson, I have to say Hanson Company, because the interaction between U.S. Steel and Sid was minimal. John Reinhardt, working for U.S. Steel, was Sid's contact person there. But he wasn't hired by Hanson Company. And he was working on other jobs at the same time, Selenese and, and Yokohama Tire, a lot of other industrial accounts. U.S. Steel was only one account. 
for Sid at that time. Talk about that final portfolio, though, because we're going to look at some of that. What was that intended to be and do and, and what happened with it? All we know is that it was supposed to be a book and they couldn't understand, couldn't decide, or couldn't agree on how it was actually supposed to be. And I think the Hanson Company at that time was, that was when they were running into some financial difficulties. And because Sid was told he would no longer have commissions from the Hanson Company, they were closing their doors. They were going to go out of business. And that's when Sid, um, after a few months of freelancing and finding his own way, founded Sid Mead Incorporated. And right. he no longer relied on a company like Hanson to hire him for their commissions, started his own company. And within a few months, he uh, landed his own accounts and the rest is history. Now, as I understand it, though, these were large format images and they were published as a portfolio on, in individual sheets. And they were given away by U.S. Steel at steel-related events and promotional events and in the sales context, etc. They became fairly popular, as I understand it. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, as you just mentioned, they were originally intended to be a book like the others, but they were always intended to be a different type of publication than the one before. So the parameters were never defined as to how the book was going to look when it was finished. And because time was running out, it was just faster to do these and focus on the art itself and the short text that went with the art because they were giveaways. These things weren't things that they were looking to publish and hit the bestseller list. These were going to be giveaways to get these in the hands of people to keep them thinking and be impressed by steel. So this is why they were done just as images in a large format that were frameable. And a lot of these, being that they were framed, didn't sit on a bookshelf. They got to be seen by more people than the ones that were put in books originally because people didn't cut them out. And they always, if they were done in full scale, there was a gutter down the center of the picture or someplace in the picture, which spoiled it for being able to be framed or being able to be shown by anyone else. For these had no gutter. They had no interruption. And once they were framed, they made an impressive image on the wall. We hear stories all the time of people that got to know who Sid Mead was through these pictures that they saw on someone's wall or someone showed them from someplace. In fact, that's the first ones I saw. I had met Sid, and we talked a lot about the USTL art and uh, other art and other pieces that he had, but I didn't know these USTL art until after I met him. Did he have fond recollections of this project in particular? Oh, he loved these projects. It's seldom that an artist gets this type of freedom, especially for industrial designers. The parameters are usually much stricter than what Sid had for these images. When you're told, here's the parameters, it has to show steel. You have to show a futuristic use of steel. Now use your imagination, whatever you want to do with it, go for it. That's all Sid needed because he was full of ideas for the future. And he was full of ideas that were going to require steel because he was what they called later in Hollywood a hardware guy. He didn't do things that were soft and puffy and historical. He did things that were mechanical and, well, industrial. He was a hard man. And, and doing these things, and he did it better than anyone else because, as more than one director found out, it was easy to translate the images that he would come up with for the assignment into a 
3D prop or a, a background or a, an object that had to be part of the movie script, rather than a lot of even industrial designers or artists did things that were to be two-dimensional, to be looked at. They were supposed to be beautiful, but they couldn't be built because in reality, the mechanics just wouldn't hold up. So he had kind of the dream assignment here of just illustrate something cool that could be done with steel, in effect. And to try and find new ways that, well, maybe we're not thinking of steel, like space stations or bridges and that sort of thing of steel. Let's look at a couple of those, if you wouldn't mind, and tell us what they are. For instance, this would be, a, I think this would be a good one to show. I'm going to put this up. That's a house and a what, what okay. is this is a housing complex. Quite a car on the left. And yeah, with a car on the left, but the house is made of steel. And it's a modular and it's uh, assembled. And there's ways of putting steel together, as you see in the, towards the right of the center is a decorative use of steel with not a wall, but not a screen either. It's just, see, we use manufactured steel into a house that could be built anywhere and probably at a much lower cost than using conventional materials at the time. And I must tell you that we had two requests for record albums that wanted to use this image as on their cover. People wanted to do interpretations of this for their architectural firms. And that, as far as we were concerned, was a mark of success that they would come to Sid based on this image. And when they would come to use this type of image for what they were trying to do, it would lead them back to U.S. Steel. Yeah, I bet it worked, too. I hope so. We never knew. You know, after 1970, we never had a connection with U.S. Steel. Well, that car on the left is pretty cool looking. We can only see part of it. Let's see another one maybe with a car more fully visible. So this isn't a car, but it's a um, vehicle. And what it is is the use of steel, not just for the vehicle itself, but in the industry it's working for, like a semi-tractor trailer of a modern truck. Well, that's pretty modern looking, yeah. At a steel mill, as the rolled steel is being hauled from place to place, what would they use but a steel truck with steel equipment? The industry itself runs on steel. Right, and U.S. Steel still is, specializes in that rolled steel, so that, that still pertains, it does. <laughs> Look at all those wheels. Got about 15 rows of axles. <laughs> well, you know, this is an image. And as I said, Sid was not the person that was going to be doing the manufacturing. But with the more wheels, the more load you could take. Right. So his concept was that we would make this thing so strong there would be nothing too heavy for it to carry. Wow. This is when you're thinking ahead in the future. Any of these things could be possible. And, you know, it's cleaner, it's a more ideal rendition of what was reality at the time. If you look at the way the people are dressed, they're not in coveralls that are covered in grease and covered in oil and working at scroungy jobs, which if you look at a Tesla factory today, if you look at companies today, people don't have to work at grubby jobs that they used to. It's coming more and more. They're using their intelligence. They're using industry and mechanics and electronics to do part of the job that was undesirable before. Right. Now they're using uh, more of a professional approach. Okay. Before we go to the next image, you mentioned Tesla. 
And I know that Elon Musk has spoken about Sid Mead. Tell us a little bit about Elon Musk and Sid Mead. Well, I can't tell you very much about the two of them together, except Elon Musk was one of the few people that sent his condolences when Sid passed. And we knew that he was a fan of Sid Mead's because people that do work with Elon Musk have written to us, as they would write to Sid anyway. Sometimes they would mention about Elon, but Elon's got his fingers in a lot of different things, and it was never personal that the two of us ever met. But he's a forward thinker, and it would be hard for him to ignore someone like Sid or Sid to ignore someone like Elon. Well, especially the uh, upcoming pickup that Tesla is launching supposedly before, I think, the end of this year, definitely in its design has strong echoes of Sid Mead's aesthetic, I would say. Well, we know that Sid's books... Not just the U.S. Steel books, but the books that we published with other publishers afterwards and ourselves are in just about every design studio, every major industrial design studio and every major design studio across the country and around the world. They are used as a reference book. Usually, as we're told, when they run out of ideas themselves, they go back to those books and glean a new idea out of those to see how Sid did it and start from there. And that's what Sid always enjoyed as his best compliment, is that he would be inspiring someone else. Even if they didn't do it Sid's way or take a design that Sid had created, but they used what they learned from what Sid did to create something even better on their own. Yeah. His heritage still lives on clearly in that aesthetic. Uh, do you have a couple more to show us? I think this is a really good example of something that Sid being told, just use steel and find another way of using it or another way of implementing what a, a good use of steel for the future. These were all based on that rotating ankle joint that was designed by a company for the military, for a military crawler type of vehicle. And Sid just expanded it, used it as a larger vehicle and designed a whole vehicle around it that would be something of the tank of the future that wouldn't be just for the desert. It wouldn't be just for the forest. It wouldn't be just for the Arctic or for the swampland, but it could go anywhere. Those types of appendages were not restricted to flat surfaces or to any one particular surface. It That's was a pretty wild drawing for early 1960s. 1969 is what this would be. 1969, pretty wild for that year, too. So didn't you say George Lucas was influenced by this? Not George Lucas directly, but the person that was working for him on the second Star Wars movie, Return of the Jedi. He was influenced by this image when he was coming up with the walkers for the desert. They thought they were perfect, and uh, why wouldn't he be, you know? It was adaptable for that image. But that's one of the examples that we're talking about of Sid's books being in the design library that were referenced when someone had to come up with a new idea, and they take it and expand on it themselves. Great. Now, do you have an image of a car by any chance? Just a car, yes. I have a particular image I think that I should show you because it was a car that was designed just as the others were designed with the use of steel, but in essence, it was in a different direction. It was for a luxury automobile. Uh -huh. This one was done called the Sentinel 300. Wow. And you'll also see the mass transit vehicle in the back. It could be a hydroplane, could be a boat, it could be a double-wide train, which was one of Sid's ideas, but it was made of steel as were the skyscrapers in back of it. But the limousine in the front, the Sentinel 300, was the ultimate limousine, elegant vehicle. 
And there was an engineer that picked up this portfolio series and brought it home to his son, who was about eight years old at the time, who fell in love with that vehicle. It was inspired to become an automobile designer himself and later become the head of Hot Wheels. And he hired Sid to design the front and the back and the top so that they could make a Hot Wheels of this in 2003. Wow, that's great. Hot Wheels. You can find the Sentinel 300 as one of the Hot Wheel cars. I love his name, Sentinel 300. But also, even today, that looks pretty modern. That does not look dated. That You could see that somebody would probably buy that if anybody would make it today. Well, Sid set his own trends, and it's just aerodynamics and the use of steel to its best advantage. And what would create the best impression of what Sid always thought the arrival was the time to make the impression. <laughs> when you pull up in front of a, a, a meeting or someone else's house or wherever you arrived, this is the way you wanted to look. You wanted to step out of a vehicle that looked like this. A lot of that seems to be lost today as we've gone quite in a different direction. And elegance and style is kind of taking a back seat, not to uh, be too automotive about it, but he thought cars should look good. There's no reason why they should not look good. We're not all going to go into the forest and we're not going on to the, the rocky crags of some mountaineering expedition. We all go to places where we dress up and this is the kind of vehicle we should be going in. That makes sense. And I'd say Tesla, again, is kind of following a similar aesthetic uh, presumption. I think that's good. So let's talk a little more about Sid himself and his career after this and just talk us through the rest of his life and any role that Steele might have played in that or just generally what happened to Sid as his career got even more famous and world celebrated. Well, to talk about Sid the man first, he grew up very poor. His father was a Baptist minister and they didn't have a lot of money for, well, any of the extras in life because they were beholding to the parishioners for donations. And so one of his only toys was crayons, crayons and paper. He said he always had plenty of crayons and pencils and papers and was encouraged to use his imagination to come up with whatever it was that he uh, could envision as stories. And his father used to read to him from what was called the big little books, little books for children of stories of Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers, Jules Verne. And he was so fascinated by those stories and those ideas of being able to travel in other planets that he put together his old images. He always remarked that he thought the kids in later generations were robbed of the ability to make up their futures. They began to follow what they saw on television because they didn't have to make up those images to fit what they heard on radio. He thought radio was the best impetus to imagination because it made you vision in your mind. And in fact, he'd like to go to an organization here in Los Angeles, which promoted old radio shows. And I can attest going with him that if you have ever gone to a Halloween radio show, or listen to a Halloween radio show, you will scare yourself more than any images you can see in the movie theater. I don't care what they put on the movie theater, you can still dismiss it as being less scary than what you've done in your own head. Just listening to the sound of that squeaky door or whatever those sounds are that you can't identify and <laughs> having people scream. <laughs> 
<laughs> there's just something to be said about the imagination. This is what happened to Sid. He nurtured his imagination. He developed it. And as a teenage boy, he ran into problems with his mother because some of his characters didn't have clothes. And uh, he developed that part of his imagination, too. But uh, it, it all worked together for his later career. Being able to, well, keep redoing it and perfecting it and making it even better. Talk about some of the work he did do in the last decades. Well, all his years, he started out as an automotive designer, as I said, and he found that limiting. And then this assignment with just the uses of steel was a, a possibility. But for bread and butter, all through his career, he had a long stint as doing architectural renderings, which were 60-story skyscrapers that he had to follow blueprints and specifics and the parameters for what materials were available in the skyscrapers and uh, the interiors of the restaurants and the, the lobbies and, and forms. And it was his bread and butter account. And that went on during the 70s and 80s. And then abruptly it ended in the early 90s. It was almost overnight that computers took over and every architect could find that they could get a reasonable facsimile of a image of what that building was going to look like or what that interior was going to look like from a computer built image and they didn't need to spend the money to have someone like Sid create that image in gouache rendering which took a long time and it was unchangeable once it was completed if you set the building in pink marble and bronze glass, whatever. It couldn't be changed. You had to do a whole complete new rendering where the computer-generated images could be changed by just a different adaption of the software. That was a big change in the industry. And the AI is continuing to do that with all types of applications for designers and concept designers and people that imagine the future. Now, I know that you yourself have a strong feeling for Detroit, and you've studied to be an auto designer. Talk about what you personally have learned and feel about cars and their future and any relation that steel might have to that. Well, as cars themselves, I miss a lot of the elements of the old days for automotive industry. And what we used to conceive of as an extension of ourselves of what type of car we drove. When I was 16, I couldn't wait to get my driver's license. I got it the next day, actually the day after I turned 16, where today I don't think most of today's teenagers at 16, that's a priority with them, at least the ones I've been talking to. They don't seem to be that interested in being independent in that way. They're more electronically connected and socially connected through their softwares and through their iPhones and not personally connected as we were by having to travel from place to place to be together or to attend those types of events. You're a really lover of the glory days of Detroit. Do you think we could ever get back to that? Well, I don't know about if we want to ever get back to that. you got to remember that the reason I'm enthralled with all that is I was nine years old and then I couldn't see why anybody wouldn't want a car with tail fins. Or <laughs> now today, <laughs> I can see they're a totally useless commodity. There's no reason why a car needs fins. It's not going that fast that it has anything to do with it. But at the time, at nine years old, I thought that was the ultimate possession, is to have a car that had tail fins and had chrome, and you could jump in it. You could go anywhere. We saw 
images of people flying down the freeways in all directions and go to one place. They didn't show the traffic jams. They didn't show the trouble you'd have finding a place to park. They always showed you uh, these cars were just, the people were, were just having a great old time driving their cars. That was the fun part. And at nine years old and 10 years old, I was just in it completely. I can't tell you what 1957 was like with the cars. And, and if you're old enough to remember, or if you're familiar with what old cars look like on the used car lots or in the collectible auctions today, they had fins and they had gizmos and, and trinkets all over. And it was just fascinating as a kid to be young at that time and, and have it available. Well, I'm one of those guys that when I turned 16, I got my license immediately in Southern California. And then shortly thereafter, my family moved to Connecticut and I drove most of the way when I was just a little over 16 in a 1968 Pontiac convertible. It was a lot of fun driving that thing across country. So I bet it was. And when you went from, where did you go? From LA to Connecticut. Yeah. Okay. And how many times did you get caught in a traffic jam? I don't remember being in traffic jams too often. We were on the highway. We were breezing along. Yes. <laughs> and it, well, it's a different world out there today. It sure is. Well, what are any other thoughts that you have, Roger, about steel, about Sid's relationship to U.S. steel that we haven't talked about that we should make sure we touch on before we wrap up here? Well, one of the things I would hope that you would touch on would be the fact that U.S. steel is still a viable corporation and steel is still part of our day-to-day -day lives, made in the USA. I just think that's great. It has gone through so many changes that I've lost track of it over the years, and it was I was pleasantly surprised when I you contacted me about U.S. Steel that it's going so well right now. Yeah, I mean, it's more than it's just still around. The opportunities for steel just proliferate in this age as we're shifting toward a more sustainable society because pretty much all renewable energy equipment is built with steel. U.S. Steel has a lot of exciting visions about where they want to take things going forward. So looking back at this era in the 60s when U.S. Steel sponsored this great imagineering kind of work by Sid to envision a future with more versatile and varied uses of steel is very apt. And it's great talking to you about it. So thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure on my part, because as I said, I went through college and uh, for industrial design and steel was a big part of that. All of the metallurgy classes I had to take, I was very familiar with the best material for the best product produces the best product. As I got into design and industry after a meeting in Sid, and at the time for me, Detroit was on the decline and Japan was the automotive producer around the world. And I was received a, an awakening when I heard that the Japanese automotive industry was a success based on the philosophy of Deming. His books, which, you know, he had presented them to the corporations in the United States, and they rejected him. And he was an American that was trying to be part of U.S. Steel and be part of Ford Motor Company and be part, show them the best way to produce products. And having been rejected here, he went to Japan. And they were using the, the philosophies of Henry Ford and the philosophies of Deming to produce the best products that the public wanted. And I think that now it's come around full circle and it seems to be happening again with U.S. Steel. We're realizing that we have all the capabilities, we have the materials, we have 
everything that we need to be the best if we just listen to ourselves. Right. And there are a surprising number of things for which steel is definitely the best material. And Sid was trying to show you that back in the 60s. He felt that there are certain things that cannot be replaced with steel. Or if they can be replaced now with steel, that there's a better use for steel in other ways that we're not using yet. We should still explore that. Wonderful, Roger. Let's talk about some of Sid's illustrations. For our listeners, we've included links to the illustrations in the episode notes, so check out those links. Show us another one. Okay, this one in particular that was done for U.S. Steel, this was the use of steel, uh, cars, highways, during the most inclement weather. This could be during like the storms that we just recently had in California with just a deluge. But the steel cars and the steel highways are still the mode of transportation getting us from point A to point B. And it was this particular image that Ridley Scott looked at and was inspired to hire Sid to do the movie Blade Runner. This is the type of dystopian future that I'm looking at where people have to live in these conditions where other people have learned to avoid this situation by moving to better climates or, or in higher elevations, where they're at arm's length from having to deal with things like weather. So Sid did a lot of the scenic design for Blade Runner? Sid always did a scene for any image that he was created. He was hired to do the vehicles, but when he did the vehicles, he always put them in situ. So he did the vehicle, he did the parking meter, the street lights, the shops in back of it. And Ridley Scott became enamored with the way everything worked together in the story. He makes movies, Ridley Scott does. And that's what Sid does. Sid makes movies, but he makes movies one frame at a time. What exactly was his role then on Blade Runner? Well, at first it was just to do the vehicles. But it expanded to certain things like the void count machine and other things in the movies and always had the backgrounds for those images, which lent themselves to Ridley Scott just saying, build the sets the way Sid's designed it. Make them look like this when you get done. Visually extraordinary movie. So what a great triumph that was. That's what uh, you know, it's been said over and over again, that it's it was striking. And it was a, a movie that depicted the future as not being ideal and not being perfect, maybe the future could be worse. And up until that time, very few people would even have considered that as an alternative. Unfortunately, it's a lot easier to consider now, but we're hoping for something alternative to that. I love that. It looks a lot like a Batmobile, too. Yes, from that angle, it would. And I thought I, I would just throw in this one. When it came to the good old days, when you had to take an illustration and you had to have it photographed, and then you had to ship the physical artwork and have it photographed again and pasted up. Sid did this illustration, and he had to have it approved by the Hansen Company before it became part of the publisher's print. And at the time, they needed to know what it was going to be like to, in order to get approval from U.S. Steel. So Sid sent him this one, and it came back, tried to finish it. And in the meantime, they took the one that he sent for approval. And if you'll notice, the one man only has one hand. He doesn't have two. It wasn't finished yet. They liked it so much, they just went ahead and used it? Well, they didn't know. They, <laughs> they didn't look at it close enough. Talk a little bit about what we see there, Roger. What is that? Well, that was supposed to be a racing vehicle. This is at a race, and it was electronic vehicles, electric vehicles that were going to be in the race. The cars that could be recharged instantaneously and didn't have to stop for gas and oil and that sort of thing. But it was still going to be made of steel. 
And the steel was going to be used in the electronics, and it was also going to be used as part of the racetrack. So that guy with one hand is the driver, and the thing on no, the, the right guy with one the... hand is the engineer. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, and that's the guy that's recharging the vehicle. Oh, I see. And then there's somebody inside that pod. Yes, and he's adjusting it. See, this is all for the adjustments. It's not the actual race. Pretty cool. So it's like a pit stop in the race. Or like a training session. Right, right, right. Cool. Okay, that's beautiful. And all these were part of the U.S. Steel Series. Oh, yes. Yeah, everything. You know, it's the vehicles. The use of the steel is prominent. That's what you see most is something that's steel. Sid was a big proponent of the independence that cars and mobility affords us. And although he did not like camping, he did not like exploring, he didn't feel like the people that don't want to ride a burrow for two days to get to the bottom of the canyon should be deprived of the experience of something like the Grand Canyon. So he proposed a structure that would be made of reflective steel. You know, shiny stainless steel that could be built and wouldn't infringe on the view of the actual place where it was built, but it would give millions of people the opportunity to experience it without having the difficulty of putting up with the elements, because so few of us really are that able to put up with some of the harsher elements of the Grand Canyon. So that image we're looking at is a reflective steel hotel proposal for the Grand Canyon. It could be the Grand Canyon, or it could also be a canyon on another planet. We don't know that there aren't places out there in the universe that are even more spectacular than the Grand Canyon. What are those things sticking out of that disk at the, in the foreground? Those are some type of a transport rocket, like a helicopter rocket. The people are dressed in climate-controlled outfits that allows them to go to other planets. You think it's more likely this was an image of another planet than the Grand Canyon? Could have been, but, you know, he's not limited to a definition when you see this. What he does is spark imagination. So it could be either way or any way that your imagination wants to interpret it, because that's what these illustrations were supposed to do. Pretty darn cool. Well, that is beautiful. Do you have more or you want to keep going? This one in particular, I'll just show you. It was more of a domestic image of things that they were without having a limitation. Sometimes he had to do something a little bit more closer to home. And at the time, he was shopping for a new car. Oh, that's cool. It's an automotive dealership. And the salesman is showing mom and dad. And Sonny is looking at the car. They're looking at what was closer to a family's minivan or a vehicle that was built for a family. And I'll just draw attention to the, the license plate that was in front of the car was his phone number. He said he sometimes used the opportunity to promote his own phone number. That's <laughs> so that People would call it and, you know, because he was just starting, he hadn't started his own business yet. But, you know, what other number should he put there? He didn't know. I always laughed at that one because I go back to this picture and remember what his phone number was at the time. Pretty nice looking car dealership, I'd say. Yes. And if you notice, the car to the left is a different type of hinged mechanism where the whole car would open up to work on the engine or to clean it or to change maybe the upholstery or whatever you were doing with the automotive for excess and excess. The architecture itself is futuristic. If you're buying a new car, you don't want to drive it around Victorian houses if you have a brand new car. You know, you like harmony in your life. And that's what an artist, I think, seeks for is harmony. But I think we all do in certain levels that when things don't fit together, it just, it affects us. It affects everyone. 
that way. Yeah, although right now it's very trendy to mix antiques and modern furniture in an interior. But, can, but there's a way of keeping that in harmony. You, you know? got to keep it in harmony. Well, he was a harmonious-oriented guy. There's no doubt about it. Well, he was probably one of the hardest people to get excited and out of control. He was very level-headed and very intelligent. And he always kept his cool, it seemed like. He showed his flamboyance in his artwork. He did. And he kept harmony in his artwork, in his mind, his imagination. He kept things together. He didn't get upset about the little things in life. That's a good quality to have. I wish I had. He was a remarkable human being. I'm, I'm just thankful that I was able to see him. And those are basically the ones I had stories about. There were more. Those are good. But uh, I don't have a unique story about the rest of them. There's a great bunch of images. But Roger, you've been great, super patient, super creative, super enthusiastic. And I really want to thank you for myself and for U.S. Steel. Steel Stories is brought to you by U.S. Steel. To find out more about our sustainable steel solutions and how our best for all strategy allows us to re-envision the future alongside our customers, visit www.ussteel.com. Search for U.S. Steel in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. And make sure to hit subscribe so you never miss a future episode. On behalf of the team here at U.S. Steel, thanks for listening. Yeah.